A few weeks back, I talked about imposter syndrome. It landed. I got a ton of emails from people talking about the struggle, about how they feel like they don't belong. The next question they asked was the hard one. How do I get it to go away? Today on the pod, we're going to talk through a handful of questions sent in by listeners, newsletter readers, and potentially my mom if I need a softball. But back to the imposter syndrome question. I was thinking about it while pulling together this Q&A, but while I was doing this, all I could think about was a mailbag episode where people ask you questions. Who the hell do you think you are? So no, I haven't figured out the imposter syndrome thing yet, but I'll let you know if I do. In the meantime, I did give my thoughts on a bunch of questions people asked over the first 42 episodes of this pod. And a disclaimer, I got myself a little hot and bothered talking about VC funding again. I had to take a couple of takes, but it's still a little bit feisty. To all the VCs listening, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about the bad ones. Anyway, this is the Holiday Mailbag, and this is our theme music. Welcome to the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and you want to do it right, head to gettacklebox.com. Short intro today, we've got a lot of cues to A, so let's get into it. The first question comes from Kristen. I got a little carried away with the answer, but hopefully it's still good. She said, I hear a lot about entrepreneurs with superpowers, but those are usually coding or design or fundraising or whatever Adam Newman from WeWork had. What's a superpower I might be able to develop since I don't have any of those other things? Thank you, Kristen. Great question. Two quotes for this one pop right into my head. One's by Thomas Watson Sr., the legendary founder of IBM, and the other's by the lead character in Ted Lasso, a show I like on Apple. They're basically on the same level, so we'll start with Ted Lasso. The quote goes, you know what the happiest animal is? The goldfish, because it's got a 10-second memory. I think that human behavior has a bigger impact on startups than idea or team or really anything else does. There's a good book by Morgan Hauser, I'll pop into the show notes, called The Psychology of Money, where he argues that doing well with money is all about human behavior, not about how smart you are. He argues that there are huge fluctuations on how people are able to manage money because human behavior is hard to teach. Someone who's a CEO of an investment bank might be worse at managing their own money than a corn farmer with a high school degree. Managing your own money is a soft skill, not a hard one. Entrepreneurship is a soft skill too. It's about human behavior, not about smarts. And the right mindset can be, needs to be, your superpower. An entrepreneur's mindset needs to be a weird and unnatural mishmash of optimism, pessimism, and goldfishism. In the short term, you got to be a pessimist. Things probably won't work, so plan for contingencies and expect lots of hurdles. Your customer probably doesn't really want what you're selling, at least not yet. Your margins probably won't really hold up, at least not initially. Churn is probably going to be higher than you think. Prepare for the worst. Be ready for all your customers to leave at the drop of the hat. Be ready for your co-founder to quit. Be alert and ready for it all. But your long-term view needs to be relentlessly optimistic. Your North Star is set. Things in the short term aren't working, but you'll figure that out. The world will end up being the way you think it will be. Rigid in the long term, flexible in the short term. And the goldfish brain part? That's for handling all the stuff you'll have to do that doesn't work. 
You can't expect ordinary inputs to lead to extraordinary results. So you've got to try things. You've got to send 100 cold emails and expect to get zero responses. You've got to create a Slack community that no one joins. You've got to offer something for free that no one even takes you up on. You've got to be willing to try more things than anyone else because the thing that works isn't going to be the obvious thing or else someone would have already done it. So the job in its description is going to require lots of failure or else the cheese at the end of the maze wouldn't have been scarce and it wouldn't have been worth it. This mailbag podcast I'm doing that absolutely no one asked for is probably going to spur some more comments like the one I got two weeks ago, which said, and I quote, who's this guy? Who gives a shit what this guy thinks? A solid point, and that only cost me two nights sleep. But now I forgot about it. Goldfish brain. Since this is so unnatural, your superpower won't be doing this innately. That won't happen. Your superpower has to be the process that enables this mishmash of thinking. I'm always surprised that entrepreneurs just think they can brute force this, that they can just go from working at Goldman Sachs and investment banking or wherever to running a startup. It's the type of chutzpah you have to respect and the type of chutzpah they'll need. But again, this isn't about smarts or about drive. It's about human behavior and apparently about saying the word chutzpah repeatedly. Anyone can run a marathon, but almost no one can run a marathon today. You need to run four times a week for four months, and then you can and will run a marathon. Startups are the same, and the superpower is the process. It's the marathon training schedule you create and stick to yourself. But again, this is much harder than just saying stick to the process. What process? And how do you know when you're improving? When do you know if what you're pushing on is gritty or just a sunk cost you should have quit on? That's where we get to quote number two in this extremely long answer. This one's from Thomas Watson Sr., the guy who started IBM, and it comes from the early part of the 20th century, but could not be more relevant today. He says, IBM is what it is today for three special reasons. The first reason is that at the very beginning, I had a very clear picture of what the company would look like when it was finally done. You might say I had a model in my mind of what it would look like when the dream, my vision was in place. The second reason was that once I had that picture, I then asked myself how a company which looked like that would have to act. I then created a picture of how IBM would act when it was finally done. Third reason IBM has been so successful was that once I had a picture of how IBM would look when the dream was in place and how such a company would have to act, I then realized that unless we began to act that way from the very beginning, we would never get there. In other words, I realized that for IBM to become a great company, it would have to act like a great company long before it ever became one. Every day at IBM was a day devoted to business development, not to doing business. We didn't do business at IBM, we built one. I get goosebumps just reading that. Maybe I need to spend some time on why I think building a business is giving me goosebumps, but I was told that the holiday mailbag is a safe space. The important thing here, at least to me, is that this isn't product focused. It's company focused. It's all about building the machine that makes the machine. A long-term rigid vision you can build towards while being malleable with the steps in the short term to get you there. I've met plenty of founders who tell me the goal of their company is to make the exact product they have in their mind. This leads to two outcomes. First, the product they'd envisioned is wrong and the customer doesn't want it, so they take it personally and never recover. They'd bet their life, their self-worth on being right about the product, they're wrong and they can't bounce back. The second outcome is that they ignore the facts that the customer doesn't want what they've built 
and they try and cram it down their throat anyway, saying that they know what the customer actually wants. They usually throw it under the cloak of persistence or some bullshit Steve Jobs quote. Neither approach works. The first product will never be right, and taking pride in the system that builds the product rather than the product itself is the way to get around that, both from a product perspective and from an emotional perspective. The superpower, then, is clarity of long-term vision of how the business you want to build operates and infrastructure to make sure you're taking steps each day to operate like that business you want to eventually build. That was a mouthful, but I think you get my point. Short-term passion, long-term optimism, always-term goldfishism. In the words of Yogi Berra, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else. All right, on to the second question at long last from Russ. Should I go to business school if I want to be an entrepreneur? Rusty, 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 Russ. No, 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 you should not. There are two reasons to not go to business school if you want to be an entrepreneur. The first has to do with the network. The second has to do with what you're trying to learn how to do. There's obviously something to the structure of business school. You're forced to interact with a few hundred people who are also very smart, very driven, very capable, and will likely be people you'll benefit from having in your network. It's almost impossible to leave business school without a significantly stronger network than when you started. But the question is, is that worth a few hundred thousand dollars in two years of your life? For me, if you want to be an entrepreneur, that's a booming no. Think about what the job to be done for the two years of your life is. What are you hiring those two years to do? What skills do you need to learn and what unique experience do you need to have to get to where you want to be? Take the X hundred thousand dollars you were going to invest in business school and invest it in yourself to hit your job to be done instead. That doesn't necessarily mean self-fund a startup. It means use that money for flexibility. If you want to get into the food business, go work at Starbucks for a year, McDonald's for another year, and a bed and breakfast for a third year. Learn how the sausage is made. Use the few hundred thousand dollars you would have spent on business school to supplement your income loss. What about the network you lose out on? Create a system. Send five cold emails every Sunday to people you want to meet. You'll end up with one a week. Do that for two years, and there's your 100-person network. It may not be exactly like B-School, but the combo of experience will beat the cream cheese out of it. And for the record, I did go to business school at UNC. It was good. I got to watch a bunch of basketball games, which I loved, and live in Chapel Hill, which I also loved. But both of those things could have been done for way, way cheaper, and I could have spent my two years much more effectively. Next question comes from someone who didn't leave a name, but this has come up a ton. Here's the question. My startup needs to be designed well. My customer is used to a certain level of design and won't click on anything less. I know I need to test a lean version. How do I do that while still having great design? Design used to be the best way to borrow credibility when you hadn't earned it for whatever your product was delivering yet. But the secret's been out for a while and a base level of design is table stakes, right? Maybe? I actually disagree with the premise a bit and think if you're tight and focused enough on messaging and customer, design won't really matter. But design does make things infinitely easier. So here's how I'd do it. First, pick five to 10 sites whose design you love. Screenshot the specific pages of those sites, put them in a PowerPoint doc. Draft out whatever customer facing stuff you need. For tests, it'll probably be a few ad formats that you'll post on places like Instagram or Facebook and whatever niche channels you've identified, a simple landing page that those ads connect to, and an email template for the follow-up emails once people put their email in. Brand is more about consistency than the design itself, 
so you can hire yourself someone from Upwork or Design Hill. I'll pop those links in the show notes to make you two to three templates for you in Canva. Your landing page on something like Squarespace, if you're not selling through the site, direct to consumer and Shopify if you are, and an email template and MailChimp or whatever email provider you'd like. Get them to choose fonts and a color palette. That's enough. It should be under $1,000 and it should solve your design problem. The biggest advice here though is the design scale. You're starting out at a zero out of 10. Any designer will get you to a three, a four, a five, or a six out of 10. Your mind is at a 10 out of 10. You won't get that. But a six out of 10 is infinitely better than a zero out of 10 and that is where you start. It'll be good enough for your first customers. If design that's pretty good is too high of a barrier, your problem, customer, and messaging just aren't good enough. Our next question is from Jack. What book should I read in 2020? All right, uh, I've got my lame VC type of answer, uh, but that answer, which isn't actually terrible, is whatever other people aren't reading. Your creativity is gonna be limited by whatever your inputs are. You can't connect dots that you don't have and figuring out how to have those unique dots, as we've talked about, is the way to figure out how to have a unique idea. A better or another answer is just to read what interests you. I've always gotten inspiration from whatever I'm reading, whether it's a business book or a mystery novel. I'm crushing through the most recent Cormoran Strike book now, but I'm also rereading The E-Myth and Profit first. Read whatever you like. I promise you, your brain will be working on things in the background. The best answer, though, is to create an environment where it's hard for you to not read two books a month. What's that look like? I don't know. Maybe create a Zoom book club. Get a few friends. Get the first Zoom on the calendar with the book. Volunteer to speak at the first one. Now you're going to look like an ass if you don't read the book and have something interesting to say about it. As always, the habit, the practice of reading, is far more important than whatever book it is that I might be able to suggest. As for my favorite books of 2020, I'll pop them all in the show notes, but... Range, The Passion Economy, Essentialism, Boomtown, Three-Body Problem, The Lost Man, and Atomic Habits. They're all absolutely killer. Here's a question someone who sat next to me at an outdoor, socially distanced coffee shop last week asked after he eavesdropped on my Zoom call. I didn't catch his name, but he felt like a Daryl. Daryl asked, what startup verticals are you interested in now? First, let's start with people. We've all become way too specialized. I don't think that's how humans are supposed to be. Anecdotally, it seems like people used to jump careers all the time a few generations ago. But I think the baby boomers, and again, this is a generalization and anecdotal, got stuck in pretty comfy jobs, were promoted every two years, got pay raises pretty consistently, and didn't really need to look anywhere else. Unfortunately, those days are over. But the, quote, stay in one industry your whole life mindset seems to have remained. There are some exceptions. Plenty of exceptions. Jeff Bezos was a software developer into his 30s until he decided to hop into the e-commerce game. Martha Stewart was a model until she was 25, then an investment banker until her early 30s. She then became a gourmet cook and a felon. Vera Wang was a figure skater and a journalist before moving to fashion at age 40. I know this one may not seem like a great example since he's got tons of money and flexibility, but Ryan Reynolds recently started a marketing company. He's been putting out ads and they're hilarious. He just ran an amazing ad for Match.com. But is he really any more flexible than anyone else? 
he might have higher opportunity costs and higher visibility if he failed, so you might argue that he's actually less flexible than we are. After Googling for a bit, there are literally too many people to list who were absurdly successful after a wholesale career shift in their 30s and 40s or even 50s and 60s. The thing with the second and third careers are that you'll probably be much better at them than your first. If you're 35, why are you in the job you're in? Maybe because during your junior year in college, you took an econ class and that led you to an internship that led you to three jobs that led you to the job you have now. Did 20-year-old you really have a handle on where you'd best fit in the world? Don't you know more about what your true differentiating skills are now and where they can translate than you did then? Value comes from scarcity. Scarcity comes from unique inputs. If you're in digital marketing and you become a carpenter, when you decide to open up a DTC store, you're going to be ahead of 99.9% .9 of all other carpenters, not on product, but on distribution. The question then becomes, how do you facilitate this jump? What's the bottleneck? Who's doing it or already trying that you could nudge? Maybe this becomes a Lambda school type thing. As a thought experiment, what would happen if I paid people 100K to switch job fields completely, but took 2% of their earnings above 150K per year in perpetuity? I don't know, but I think there's something interesting there. The next vertical is also in people, but it's more in the coaching space. I believe everyone will have a handful of coaches very soon. Scalable coaching from wellness to mental health is extremely interesting to me. Going deeper on wellness, continuous monitoring of things like glucose and other vitals, but with a consumer layer that's actionable. I spoke with someone today who mentioned that the Whoop band solved a decades long sleep problem for them. Edge of the wedge here is tricky, but I think it's fun to think about and I think there's a ton of opportunity. Next, the electricity layer for the real estate shift. The flood of people who will be moving to an hour and a half outside of major cities when before they tried to stay within 45 minutes is going to need a lot of support. Long commutes where there aren't trains and people don't want to drive for the couple of days a week that they're in the office, shareable office space in small towns for the weeks they're not, ADUs, community, and on and on. The final one is asynchronous communication. A tool that facilitates effective async communication between employees or in a freelancer, contractor, or expert mentor type relationship. If I were listening to this and being a wise ass, I'd say, congrats, you just invented email. But email actually doesn't work for this use case at all. I'm talking about true async communication. And of course, the standbys, the things that are always worth investing in or thinking about. Pets, weddings, babies, baldness, erectile dysfunction. You can set your clock by them. Finally, we'll end with a question from our friend, Brandon. What's the most out-of-the-box idea you've got floating around? I listened to a Malcolm Gladwell podcast the other day on elections. The basic thesis was that no one knows anything, particularly when it comes to who should be elected as a leader. He then goes into a story about a guy who went to Bolivia and made all student elections random, created a lottery system. The premise was that the skills necessary to put your hand up and run for office and to win have nothing to do with the skills necessary for leading. When it's a lottery system, far more students are going to put their hands up. Instead of 10 students running for some sort of student office, basically everyone in the grade did. Once the random elections occurred, the guy taught the group who were randomly selected by the lottery system how to work together and how to lead. The group was a perfect representation of the people they were leading since it was random. It wasn't just the charismatic popular kids. The student government worked amazingly well, orders of magnitude better than if a regular election had taken place. 
This got me thinking about startup investing. Does anyone really know anything? Do VCs have any clue what they're doing? We've got a bunch of people who look alike with similar backgrounds investing in a bunch of people who look alike with similar backgrounds. It's not purposeful. I don't think they're doing this to harm anyone. They just think they're doing a good job. And maybe they are. But what would happen if it was a lottery system? All the way down to who starts companies in the first place. Maybe the skills in chutzpah, there's that word again, needed to actually pursue a startup aren't the skills needed to build a successful startup. Maybe that's why so many of these startups fail. What if we pulled everyone and said, who wants to start a startup? Then we invested 500K in a random selection of 100 startups. We then taught them how to operate, help them execute, coach them. That subset of entrepreneurs would certainly look a lot more like the general world than who VCs pick now. I have no idea if it'd work, but I think the premise that I most push back against here is that the right people are starting startups and that the right people are picking startups or can in the first place. Maybe we've just got a bunch of the startup world's version of popular people. Maybe these are the young dudes who can code running startups and the real ones who should be starting stuff never raised their hand for a million different reasons in the first place, none of which should disqualify them. Who knows? Brandon asked for the most out there idea and that's it. That brings us to the end of our holiday mailbag. I hope you liked it. If you've got questions you'd like to ask, fire them at us. Head to gettacklebox.com backslash podcast and submit. Or if you're feeling frisky, just email me directly at brian at gettacklebox.com. I have no idea if you're gonna like this or not. If you do, we've got a whole bunch of other questions we can go through. If you don't, we can just stick to the stories. This has been the Idea to Start a Podcast, and as always, if you've got a startup idea or want to learn how to start a startup, head to gettacklebox.com. And if you'd like to get me a Christmas gift, hit us with a five-star rating and a positive review. They matter a ton. Have a great week.